Well, hello, Crossing Church. How are you doing today? Now, I really appreciate that. And, uh, but I know a lot of you aren't telling the truth. That, uh, you know, you, you, you put yourself together, uh, all of our locations. And, uh, you know, I'm so glad that you're here, that you're here in person. Those of you that are inside and online, I know that you're uh, not uh, able uh, to be here in person, but and maybe you know you're still uh, in your pajamas or whatever, uh, or uh, whatever you might be doing. But the fact is, is that we want to always present something you know nice and palatable to everybody else around us. But in truth, a lot of times we are not what other people perceive we are. That there's stuff going on inside of our lives, and uh, we would just rather not burden them with that. You know, we would just rather just kind of hold that quietly inside of ourselves and uh, put a good face on, and, and uh, if people ask us, how are you doing, we'll just say fine when that's not the truth. It's kind of how we are, right? I mean, it would take a long time if you actually wanted to just you know, back up the dump truck and let it out, you know, and just say, how you doing? Well, why don't you sit down? True? Yeah, I mean, for a lot of us, that, that's how it is. And we're in the book of Romans, and we are getting into some real practicality in the latter chapters of the book of Romans, and I'm in Romans 14 and 15, and it really is a discussion on people whose faith is weak and people whose faith is strong and how those two uh, groups of people might interact with one another. And we're in uh, the part of the series we entitled Noticeable Neighbors, like kind of how are you living your life in the context of the people around you. And one of the things that we're going to be discussing today is this idea that, or this truth, that we're all damaged. And we all are, to some extent, we're all damaged. And damage is actually a part of life. And I know that a lot of us are trying to avoid it. The parents are trying to keep their kids from having to deal with it. We're trying to avoid damage. We really can't do it. Because we're surrounded by it. and We, we aren't always the victim. Sometimes we're the perpetrator. You know, because human beings, that's kind of what we do. We're living in a sinful world and... It's a world full of damage, and we tend to damage each other. Some of the worst damage, though, happens inside of a context like you're in right now. It's in a church. Because I think that we believe that this ought to be a safe place, kind of devoid of damage. Like, the, you know, we, we, we should be able to be more transparent here. We should be able to be more real here. We should be able to trust each other more here. But if you've been a part of a church for a very long, uh, for any time at all, you've probably experienced some of what we might call church damage or church hurt. And the reason, I know we, we tend to want to like label it as the church, like this, this church hurt me, but the reality is that churches are full of people, and the people that fill churches are damaged people. And when you're in the proximity of damaged people, it can damage your life. Because that's just human nature. It tends to be what we do. 
And it might take a lot of different forms in the church. It might be that you felt overlooked. Maybe you felt taken for granted. Maybe like in a small group or something, you shared some stuff. I mean, you risked it. You got open with some other people. And maybe they shared it with other people and they shouldn't have. And you felt betrayed by that. Maybe you were stabbed in the back, or maybe you were accused of something that you didn't do. Maybe it was even more serious than that. Maybe uh, you experienced something emotionally abusive or physically abusive, and there are people in churches that have been sexually abused. Maybe whatever happened to you, you experienced when you were new in your faith, and then it made you go, you know what, church? That's just like another one of these institutions. It's just another one of these things that you just can't trust. It's another club. And it really isn't very hard to get cynical. And church can be viewed as optional by a lot of people. Like, why do I even need to trouble myself with that? I'll just kind of stay back and I'll, I'll, I'll keep a healthy distance between me and all of whatever's happening in that place. I've had people uh, come to the crossing over the years, share stories with me about how broken they are uh, when they feel like maybe they can trust me with that story. And they will talk about their previous church experience. And I begin to realize just what a major step of faith it was just to walk through the door of another church again. Some of these people were some of the hardest workers in their previous church environment, some of the most committed people in their previous church, but now if you, find, if you can find them at all, they're kind of in the back, in the dark, and they kind of want to stay in the shadows. It's hard to re-engage. Boy, I sure would like to stand up here today and say, that all just goes one way. But it doesn't. Because I have to tell you that people at the crossing, staff at the crossing, they have done their fair share of hurting others and driving people away. And I think it's easy for us to make excuses for our own behavior or to find fault with people for leaving. But there is no doubt that we've damaged people too. You know, some of that damage comes from well-meaning Christians, and what well-meaning Christians are trying to do is maybe educate, or we use the term disciple, newer believers, right? And so this is what the Apostle Paul is beginning to refer to in Romans chapter 14. Let's, let's read it together. It says, "...except the one whose faith is weak without quarreling, over disputable matters. I want us to stop right there. How many matters do you ever face that are disputable? Like all of them, right? So should we be quarreling over disputable matters? Maybe somebody is pretty new in their faith. Maybe you've been in your faith a little longer. Maybe you were kind of raised up in a different context, this other person, and they're trying to figure something out. You think you've got it figured out, and so you want to disciple this person or help this person along, and you say some things 
that may be really discouraging when you're really just trying to help someone else maybe because you're inside of a disputable matter. I think it's something that we all deal with. And I think there's a real question underneath this. And uh, the real question is that, we're, well, maybe it's a, the question is, are we, are we trying to help people to become more like Jesus? Or are we trying to help people to become more like us? Maybe that's a little tougher way of putting it. I think sometimes the real truth isn't just Jesus, it's Jesus and. Jesus and my interpretation of the Bible. Jesus and my choice of worship style. Jesus and my political leanings. Jesus and my worldview. Jesus and my group. Jesus and my culture. Jesus and my color. Jesus and my education. You get it? You, talk, you, you get the picture? The point is, there is no and. There's just Jesus. And we keep trying to change other people. But ultimately, changing people is what Jesus does. It's not what we do. We're supposed to be cooperating with Him, not standing in front of Him. We need to let Him do His job and not be a detriment to that. Now, the Apostle Paul in Romans 14 gives examples of this in the Roman church's context when he talks about faith and he talks about food restrictions in verses 2 to 4 of chapter 14. Listen to what he says. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. And the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, a servant stands or falls, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. So now we're in the context of Romans, and food restriction was a big deal in the, in the Jewish world. And we've already established through this study of Romans, hope you're still doing that, that the Roman church was an established church with, with uh, Gentiles and with Jews. And so they were having to learn how to get along together when they're coming from very, very different backgrounds. And of course, if you were raised Jewish, there, there's a whole lot of rules associated with your faith. It's called eating kosher or eating pure. Now, Gentiles, they didn't follow those regulations, and they were not required to follow those regulations. But that didn't stop Jews from looking down on Gentiles because of the food they ate. And it was a big deal to them, and it was causing a lot of problems. How do we, uh, how do we connect that to our world today? Well, I'm speaking from Quincy, and in many ways, uh, Quincy is a very Catholic community, right? There's eight parishes in Quincy, and I, I, I don't know about like all the rest of the uh, other ten locations, but definitely here, uh, that's a reality. And uh, 
The story goes of a, of a Jewish man that moved into a new community, and it was a pride, uh, predominantly Catholic community, and, uh, and so, and all of his neighbors were, were Catholics, and uh, so on Friday, uh, one of the things that this uh, Jewish man loved to do was cook a nice steak on the grill. And so every evening, this guy was out there, and he's cooking a steak on the grill, and all of these Catholics that were pretty hardcore Catholics were taught that they could only eat fish on Friday. And so here comes this aroma wafting over the back fence, and it's just driving all of his neighbors crazy. And every single Friday night, this guy is cooking a nice, juicy steak on his grill. And eventually, they just can't take it anymore. And so they have an HOA meeting. I mean, they, they get the neighbors together, you know, all the, the Catholic neighbors, and they go, what are we going to do? This is like, this is making it impossible. I, can't, I mean, you know, here I am, I'm trying to eat my fish, I'm smelling this, it's killing me. And so they're talking about it, and they decide, you know what we got to do? Let's convert this Jewish guy to Catholicism. That's what we'll do. And so they started ganging up on him as neighbors, like, like you know, encouraging him and talking to him and working on him. And over a period of months, you know, they started to break this guy down. And before long, they had him to the place where he was ready to convert from Judaism to Catholicism. So they took him to their, to their uh, church. It, it took him before the priest. And I don't know what it is that the priest has that has the water in it, you know, like the holy water. What is that thing called? I don't know what that thing's called. Anyway, it, you know, this is a sprinkler thing. That's the technical term. Anyway, and so the, the Jewish man comes there and, and he, he gets down on his knees and the priest standing over him and he's sprinkling the holy water on him and he goes, born a Jew, raised a Jew, now a Catholic. And all of the neighbors went, yes, that's it, solve that problem. Next Friday... Here comes that smell. The smell of a nice steak cooking on that guy's grill. And they go, we've got him now. And they all join up in the street and they head over to his house. They walk into his backyard and there he is over the grill with his little water bottle. And he's going, born a cow, raised a cow, now a fish. Brothers and sisters do not determine who their parents are. Even though a lot of you, especially the younger ones, uh, your older brothers and sisters try to convince you that, uh, you know, who your parents were and weren't. And what does the word accept mean? When Paul uses it, it means not to reject. It means not to ignore it means not to treat someone else as second class. Acceptance is a basic recognition of family. It's understanding not only who we are, but whose we are. That it isn't us who determines our siblings in Christ. It's Christ. 
That's determined by the parent. We don't have to agree. But when we disagree, we need to disagree in a very agreeable way. Years ago when I lived in Indiana and our children were little, uh, we were downtown and there's a famous deli downtown called Shapiro's in Indianapolis. And Allison is uh, trying to manage these children, toddlers at the time, and it's hard to do that. And at the same time, order. So she's not just ordering for herself, she's also ordering for them. And this is one of those places where I kind of step back and let her do that, right? Or thankful that she does do that. And so she's kind of going fast at Shapiro's, and so she goes uh, for one of the kids, she says, like a ham sandwich. Shapiro's is a deli. It's a Jewish deli. Are you, is it too early in the morning? They don't serve ham. Now, the person behind the counter could have gotten frustrated by that. But they could see that there was a, a young mom here dealing with kids and a dad. And I, I, just, I remember that moment. I looked at her and I went, oh my gosh. And, and the guy behind the counter said, hey, wouldn't you like some nice pastrami? I mean, he didn't make a big deal out of it. He didn't say, did you not understand that this is a Jewish delicatessen and we don't serve ham? That ham is not kosher meat? He didn't scold her, give her a hard time. He just said something nice back. If we're going to disagree, we need to disagree in an agreeable way. Paul goes on to talk about how in Jewish culture, one day is more important to another. And of course, that's a core value in the Old Testament covenant law between God and the Jews. Part of the Ten Commandments was the fourth commandment, which was remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But Gentiles were not a part of that covenant law. And in the New Testament, when we see the church established, you see this movement from the Sabbath day, which was a Saturday. And by the way, it wasn't a Saturday the way you understand or I understand a Saturday. Because a Jewish Saturday begins on our Friday at 6 p.m. And it goes from Saturday to 6 p.m. But that would be the way that the Jewish people in the Church of Rome would understand it. But Gentiles didn't feel that way. And when the church was instituted in Acts 2, people began to worship the Lord on Sunday, the first day of the week, and they called it the Lord's Day. So we we see this movement from the Sabbath, the Saturday, to the Sunday. Now that would have sent a shockwave through the Jewish culture at that time. Then he talks about things like eating meat or abstaining from meat and how some people would only eat vegetables. Now, if you go into 1 Corinthians chapter 8, it'll get deeper into this, but this is kind of culturally what would happen. Anytime you would go to a butcher shop to buy meat during this era, all animals that were slaughtered were taken through like a tunnel and they were passed underneath an idol. So all of the animals that were slaughtered, that were killed and then butchered, technically had been offered to an idol. It was kind of a two-for-one, right? So they were trying to get credit from their false gods. 
about the sacrifice of an animal, even though they were going to butcher it for food. Well, there were some people that were new in their faith that were saying, no, no, no. Nothing unclean is going to enter my mouth. If this was offered to an idol, I won't eat it. So they would only eat vegetables. And other people would say, come on. The fact that people are doing whatever they're doing with that animal as far as passing it under an idol is no big deal. All this meat is clean. God's made it clean. They would argue about that. And you can see how there would be divisions in the church and difficulty and mean-spirited talk and people would get frustrated and they would step away from it because of what was going on, right? And you might think to yourself, that would not happen today. We wouldn't do that in a church today. Come on. You know what I've noticed? I don't know about this in all the other, our other communities, but in Quincy, Halloween is a pretty big deal. I mean, some people like go crazy. Like with their yards and everything, right? They just go nuts to celebrate Halloween. But there are some people, well-meaning Christians, that are like, that is the devil's holiday, and no one should ever celebrate Halloween because you're glorifying the devil. For many years, my wife ran the preschool in, here in Quincy, and uh, we did a Halloween alternative for preschoolers, it was called Noah's Ark Park, and kids would dress up as animals to go on the ark. But there were some well-meaning Christians tending to disciple others that said, how dare you dress little children up as animals for Noah's Ark Park because you're trying to give them an alternative to Halloween because it's really just Halloween. You pagans. Now you can see how some people by faith are saying, we should never do anything called Halloween. Other people, by faith, are saying it's not a big deal. And there's even these positive ways that we can do this. Would you call that a disputable matter? Sure, certainly I would. Because we all have our opinions. But our opinions should never be more important to us than the people that Jesus died for, for goodness sake. Look at verses 7 to 10. It says, for none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother and sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. We have to recognize that it is not our job to judge or condemn other people. Leave that to the Lord and you just bring Jesus to, not Jesus and, just Jesus to people. Now, In our movement of churches, called the Restoration Movement, there are churches that are instrumental and there are churches that are non-instrumental. As a matter of fact, uh, from this location where I'm preaching at 48th and Main, if you go over to State Street, about 46th and State, there is a Church of Christ. It's a non-instrumental Church of Christ. Because the people of the non-instrumental Church of Christ do not see instruments being used 
to worship God in the New Testament. They're worshipped in uh, using instruments in the Old Testament, but not in the New Testament. And since the New Testament is silent about the use of instruments in worship, they don't use instruments and they sing a cappella. Now they're fine with music in any other setting, but when it comes to worship, no instruments. How should we feel about that? Well, you obviously know how I feel about it. Because, you know, we love music in all forms and instruments and we think that's fine. But what if I were to invite, and we have before, someone from the non-instrumental Church of Christ to come and speak at the crossing? What would I do? Would I have an expectation that they just need to just get over it? Or would I do something different? I've literally done this and I've asked people to come and I've told them, listen, we will cover our instruments and we will sing a cappella because we want to honor you. Because whether we have instruments or don't have instruments doesn't mean anything compared to who Christ Jesus died for. And we need to honor each other that way and not get caught up so much in disputable matters. Because ultimately, we are all going to have to answer to God for this. That's what that scripture says. Look at verses 12 and 13. It says, So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or a sister. That's the main thing. We're not supposed to forget it. Let's look at another verse, the 19th verse. It says, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. I wish I could frame that and hand it out to everybody. Let us do whatever leads to peace and mutual edification. Edification means to encourage. It means to build up. Make another person feel pretty good about where they are. So, and it's, so there's two things there. Peace and mutual edification. Here's two questions we should always ask ourselves before we ever get into a conversation that is going to devolve into a disputable matter. Number one, does my part in the conversation lead to peace? Are the things that I'm saying or the ways that I'm responding, doesn't matter if I brought it up or they brought it up, is it leading to peace? Number two, do the things that I contribute to the conversation actually build the other person up in some way? I want you to think about, before stuff came out of your mouth, how much different would your life be if before anything came out of your mouth, you asked yourselves those two questions and then lived according to them? Is it contributing to peace? And I, am I encouraging the other person in some way? I would imagine a lot of us would have a lot less to say. I imagine that a lot of us would be spending a lot less time on social media. And, it, and, and we would look at our phones and when we got, we got our screen time thing, it would say, well, you're really down. You know, it's like, yeah. Why? It's because of that. (sighs) 
If those things are not happening, we need to ask why. Could it be because we have this pride issue that we want to be right? That we just want to be right? Uh, here a couple of weeks ago, I received an email. Some people had come to me and they had asked me to use my influence as the publisher of Christian Standard Magazine to promote something. And they were being oh so nice to me. And I took them out and we had uh, a meal together and, uh, you know, was sharing with them. And then uh, immediately I got emails back, just really positive. Boy, I really appreciate your time. Really appreciate the things you shared with us. I'm so excited about this. I'm so excited about that. But as some people do sometimes, they don't realize that they have other emails to one another attached to the email that they sent to me. And the two guys were emailing each other back and forth, talking about me. And hadn't realized that they sent that along, that that was somehow attached. You know? You'd never do anything like that. That's never happened to you. <laughs> so I'm reading this and I'm like, wow, that, so that's what they think. That's what they really think. One guy was saying to the other guy, I, 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 I'll place a bet that he doesn't, call, he doesn't email us back for two weeks. Stuff like that. I showed it to my wife. She got really upset. And so there's a part of me that's going, and I was working on this sermon. And I went, great sermon illustration, but it doesn't lead to peace or mutual edification. Let go. Right? And some of you are going, are going well, that never, that's never happened. Anything like that's ever happened to me. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, maybe it hasn't. Maybe it didn't have an email issue like that. But maybe to a person's face, you've said the things you know that they want to hear. But when you get with somebody else and you talk about that person, the conversation is very different. And we're all guilty of that. Look at the 22nd verse. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. That is some really, really good advice. Have you ever gotten into it with someone about some petty thing, and then after the damage is done, you look back and you say to yourself, it would have been just better if I would have kept my foolish mouth shut? Keeping some things just between you and God. Look, it's okay. If you want to say to God, this person just really hacks me off. I don't know. God can handle that. You, keep, you, know, you complain up. It's okay. He'll work through that. He'll remind you of all the things that you do. Right? But this other direction is not good. This direction from 22 is really good advice. And the other thing that you see from this is that Jesus takes it personally when people insult you because of your faith. It offends you when people insult you because of your faith. It also offends Him. 
And you might go, okay, all right, it's nice to have someone stand up for me. That's a good thing, but wait. He also takes it personally when you and I talk down to someone because of some shortcoming they might have, or maybe not to someone, but about someone to someone else. Chapter 15, verses 1 to 3 says, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Jesus, even Christ did not please Himself, but as, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Truth is, sometimes we know just enough about the Bible to hurt people. And we need to step back and we need to do our best to learn practical ways that we can walk out our faith and live out our faith without hurting other people. Because that hurt can be profound. I want to close with this. When I read a story in the Bible, it's not uncommon for me to want to identify with whoever is the hero. Because I want to be that person. I want to be the one who does the right thing. Isn't it interesting that so many of us tend to want to identify with the hero in the story? But when it comes to our own intimate, personal relationship with Jesus, we have to understand there's only one hero, and it's never us. Jesus is always the hero of the story. And the glory goes to Him, doesn't go to us, right? Well, maybe you're going, well, you missed me on that one, Jerry. Because when I read a story in the Bible, I identify with the victim. Okay. Maybe you identify with the victim because, you know, we kind of live in a victim culture. And so, yeah, because we're not thinking about maybe being the good guy. Maybe we're thinking about the other person being the bad guy and me being recipient of that. I'm not saying that those things aren't valid. But when you try to identify with the victim of the story, you're doing the same thing that I'm doing if I identify with the hero of the story because ultimately there's really only one victim and that's been victimized to this level, to, to the highest level and that's the same person who's the hero in the story. Has there ever been a greater victim than Jesus? Has there ever been someone treated more unfairly than Jesus? And so if you want to get up on the pedestal for hero maybe you should step out maybe you could step off and if you want to get on the pedestal for the victim maybe you should step off and maybe all of us together need to look to the one place where the truth is the one place the one person who was the hero of every story and a person who was victorious even with this kind of victimization Truth is, we are a collection of victims and perpetrators. And to be honest, probably everybody I'm talking to has been both at one time or another, maybe even now. But Jesus is here, the ultimate victim and the ultimate hero, and he is here to heal the victims, and to turn the hearts of perpetrators back to Him if we'll just lean into Him today. This place was made to be a place of healing. 
a place of burdens lightening, a place of new life and new perspective, a place where old is laid down and the new is freely and gratefully received. Let's be that place. We're moving to a time of decision. Earlier this week, Allison and I were at, we sit at the dinner table and we work there and Abby, my youngest daughter, came over with uh, her, uh, uh, one was at preschool, the other one is younger than that and brought the younger one. uh, And I'll tell you, these two kids of hers, I love these two kids so much, they are all boy and they are like two Tasmanian devils, like if there is something on a shelf, or there is something put away, that is totally a wrong thing. It needs to be fully displayed on the floor for all to be able to see and maneuver around. Sometimes that irritates me. It doesn't really seem to bother my daughter. She's a great mom with them. It doesn't seem to bother my wife. So we're sitting there and Abby and I are talking about some of the different struggles that we're dealing with and she's sharing with me, she's being transparent. I'm trying to share with her and being transparent. And she said something to me that kind of hit me. She goes, I'm such a perfectionist. But she really wasn't talking about how she viewed others. She was talking about how she viewed herself. she always falls short of what she feels like she ought to be or ought to do. I don't know if you guys connect with that or not. And I was trying to think of something I could say to encourage her. And for some reason, she took her eyes off of me while we were in this conversation. Maybe she heard something that her son was doing right next to her on the other side with Allison, with him bouncing on the lap, watching train videos. And I saw that, and it occurred to me. I go, Abby, I know that may be how you feel and how you think, but you need to understand that when God looks at you, it's just the same as when you look at Avery. That's what he sees. He sees you that way. And Avery comes into this house and he makes all these messes. It doesn't seem to bother you that much. It certainly doesn't change the amount of love that God ha- that you have for Avery. And it doesn't seem to bother Allison much. It doesn't really change that level of love there either. As a matter of fact, you have a lot of grace for a kid who just turned two. And if you know this scripture, and I know she knew this scripture, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask you? Some of you are here right now, and you're trying to manage this stuff all by yourself 
trying to carry all your own load, trying to be tough enough, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, buck up. When maybe you just need to be the little kid that runs to the parent and needs to feel the nurturing arms of a heavenly father encouraging and reassuring. That's what these steps are for today. For you to just spend some time with the Lord. To be reminded that He loves you. To be reminded how He sees you. And to be reminded that we've talked about a couple of weeks ago that He has more grace than you will ever require for you. Some of you are here today, you've never come into an intimate personal relationship with God. You think you're so tough. You think you're so strong. I want you to know right now that you are surrounded by a whole room of weaklings. And the guy you're listening to is one of the biggest weaklings of all. And you can let go of that today. And you can let the Lord Jesus have His way in your life. And it'll be messy. But what do you think He expects out of an infant? There's going to be somebody right over there by that baptistry that would love nothing more than just to share with you some of what the next steps could be. And you could leave this place today completely different than when you walked in. Here's an opportunity. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together. Let's give this moment to the Lord. In Jesus' name, Heavenly Father, I pray. Take this moment. It belongs to you anyway. But help it to belong to you as far as we're concerned in our hearts. And if there are hearts right now that are struggling, I pray, Father, that we would put down those defenses be transparent before you and let you have your way in Jesus' name. Amen.